Uh, I'd like to thank the uh, organizing committee and our, our chairs for the opportunity to talk about C. difficile, an area that I think is essential when we take care of our patients with IBD. So these are my disclosures. So we're going to actually kind of frame the talk in these four areas. We're going to talk a little bit about background background, um, and some of the perhaps insights that are emerging in the recent time period about why C. diff has become such a huge problem throughout the U.S. and actually throughout the world. We're going to talk about some new considerations regarding diagnostic testing. And then likewise, there have been some changes over this past year um, regarding treatment recommendations. Our colleagues in infectious diseases have actually put out the IDSA guidelines um, that actually have changed the algorithms in some regards. They've simplified it, and there's a new emphasis being placed on efficacy of treatment. And then we're going to touch on the treatment of recurrent disease. All right, so Clostridium difficile. Um, it's actually literally called the difficult Clostridium because it was hard to culture it. Um, it was first, uh, deter- uh, first characterized in the normal flora of neonates back in the 1930s by Hall and O'Toole. Um, but unfortunately, it's a lot more easy for us to see C. difficile on our hospital wards and in our patients nowadays. Um, the organism was identified as a potential complication of clindamycin use in 1974, um, and its association with pseudomembranous colitis came in 1978. It was actually quite difficult to identify C. diff infections until 1984 when the enzyme um, toxin assays became uh, routinely available. And the endoscopic appearance of C. difficile that's severe will include these pseudomembranes that we're seeing in the typical population, not necessarily the IBD patient population. And C. difficile really does run a gamut from fairly mild disease that can be a a watery diarrhea, more of a nuisance symptoms of abdominal pain to fulminant colitis, toxic megacolon, and death. Now, the epidemiology of C. difficile um, has changed over the past several decades. In the past, it was clearly associated with antibiotic use. Um, A majority of cases were actually successfully treated with metronidazole, but that's evolved over the past several decades. Um, In the late 1990s and early 2000s, there was a doubling of C. difficile-associated disease identified in the U.S. and North America. And at that same time, there was a diminished therapeutic response to metronidazole with failure rates approaching 50%. Around the same time, there was a new strain of C. difficile, the BINEP1 epidemic strain, which has a genetic mutation in the TCDC gene, which can increase the amount of uh, toxin production multiple folds. And that was felt to be a, playing a key role in this increased morbidity and mortality. And actually, the current burden of C. difficile infections in the United States is in excess of 400,000 cases annually, and it's associated with 29,000 increased deaths. And it's nearly $6 billion of added health healthcare expenditure. Um, But what I've highlighted here is something that uh, was published in Nature in January of this uh, 2018. Studies coming out of Baylor from Robert Britton's laboratory. It's really fascinating. There is a a food additive, um, a sugar known as trehalose, that is a viscosity stabilizer that was added to many products um, in our our, uh, food supply that is uniquely associated with C. difficile virulence. Now, this is an incredible amount of detective work on the part of these colleagues at Baylor University. 
but apparently the addition of this food additive has increased C. difficile um, toxicity. Um, and that may be part of the reason why we actually have had such a huge burden with this infection over the past several decades. And trehalose was too expensive to add to food previously. And they, it was a Japanese um, pharmaceutical company um, basically that learned how to produce this at a low cost and hence it became a food additive. Now, I think we're all well aware of the fact that the microbiome is playing an incredibly important role in human health, and particularly patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, When we think about the microbiome in the relationship with human diseases, it's most obvious that C. difficile is probably the key area where a disruption of normal microbiome, normal microbiota, is actually going to lead to problems with the emergence of this infection. So what we're going to think about here are the mechanisms that hopefully prevent us from becoming um, infected with C. difficile, and that might also lead to asymptomatic carriage. So over the past several decades, there have been sort of two um, key areas that have been identified. Um, So... When antibiotics are used, the inadvertent effect on the microflora can lead to a loss of diversity and health of the microbiome, and that can lead to a loss of colonization resistance. Unfortunately, when we use antibiotics to treat C. difficile, that can then lead to additional problems with further dysbiosis. We've also come to realize that antibody production against C. difficile toxins plays a key role in terms of the ability to become an asymptomatic carrier. This is actually work coming from uh, Kieran Kelly group at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where they showed, I think, fairly definitively that um, the presence of antibodies, IgG antibodies that target C. difficile toxins are essential to becoming an asymptomatic carrier. So when we think about the idiopathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease, this is the classic Venn diagram that talks about genetic predisposition, environmental factors, and immune dysregulation. But now I think we've all come to realize that the microbes and the microbiota and potentially the dysbiosis that exists in IBD patients is playing a key role. A number of studies over the past several decades have shown that there is a dysbiotic flora commonly associated with IBD. So IBD patients are perhaps at an exceptional risk because they have a broken microflora to begin with, and that's one of the key mechanisms that leads to C. diff getting into trouble. So what I have here on this slide are some of the populations that are known to be at exceptionally elevated risk for C. difficile infections. So near the top of the list are IBD patients with colitis. It's the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's colitic population. Organ transplants, the lung transplant population has an incredibly high risk of developing C. difficile. And when patients are experiencing profound immunosuppression in the course of oncogenic therapy. So the common denominator here is an impaired humoral immunity and a dysbiotic flora. So the impact of uh, C. difficile on the IBD patient population has again been an evolving story. Um, Three decades ago, when C. difficile was first being identified, um, there was actually reports saying there was no need to look for this infection in the IBD patients. And one thing I would want you to leave this meeting is that's really not true. We definitely have to look for C. difficile because it is an organism that will affect the IBD patient population extremely heavily with important negative outcomes. These are some of the original studies that were done. Our group in Wisconsin published some of the the findings on the right side of the slide where we saw a pretty dramatic increase in C. difficile infections in our IBD patient population, and that's the top uh, right green bars. Um, Colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis used some of their administrative databases to actually show that their colitic patients were being heavily affected by C. difficile. 
Um, some of the uh, data on the bottom left shows that the percentage of IBD patients as a function of the entire C. diff infected group in Wisconsin, it rose dramatically in those early 2000s, and this led to a marked increase in hospitalizations and colectomies. Again, here's some work that Ashwin and Ashtha Krishnan performed that confirmed that these were not unique findings to single institutions, but were actually being found throughout the U.S. using administrative databases um, from 2004. Um, the IBD patients who were having a ho- longer hospital stay, increased hospitalization costs, higher collective rates, increased mortality. In 2004, there were 118 IBD patients who were in the uh, nationwide inpatient sample who died from C. diff. And if we think about extrapolating this to the entire U.S. population, population is probably close to 500 diabetes patients died of C. diff at that time period. Um, these findings were further corroborated um, with the next um, nationwide inpatient sample um, on the right. And again, the incidence was rising throughout this time period. And lastly, I have here is that the UC C. diff operative mortality approached 25% early at that time period. So when we think about where our IBD patients are coming into contact with C. difficile, um, we actually did an um, epidemiologic survey in our clinics in Pittsburgh uh, with one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Um, Scott Curry, um, where we realized that C. diff spores can live for up to 60 days in the hospital environment and our clinic environment potentially. Um, our IBD patients are coming into healthcare proximity on a regular basis. And we had the hypothesis that perhaps we were actually playing a role in those infections. So we ended up doing an epidemiologic survey of our exam rooms, our patient bathrooms, our waiting rooms, and it turns out that half of our clinic exam rooms were um, carrying C. difficile spores, and there were two items in our clinic um, that had the highest contamination. As you might imagine, the patient chair where people are going to be sitting, and we're not Cloroxing down our chairs in between our patients when we have our templates of 15, 20, 30 patients a day and the computer keyboard where physicians are typing. So it's natural for us to reach out and shake the hands of our patients, and then we promptly would put spores onto our uh, clinic uh, keyboards. Now, C. difficile spores actually are incredibly resistant. They have to be um, treated with Clorox to be killed, and there has to be prolonged contact time. So there are some modifiable factors that have been identified when it comes to C. difficile infection. Again, work from Ashwin. Um, suggests that vitamin D deficiency will actually play an important role in the development of C. difficile. And there was essentially a doubling of the risk for developing a C. difficile infection when people with IBD were vitamin D deficient. We did this study in Pittsburgh, uh, it was published this past year, when we wanted to see what was the lasting impact of a C. difficile infection on our patients with IBD. And in order to do this study, we identified um, 200 patients, a third of whom had had a C. difficile infection, and we actually generated a propensity score matched uh, control population, not at the time of the C. difficile, but the year before. So we really wanted to match our patients for severity as best as possible. And we found some interesting things in this study. We actually found that the IBD patients who were contracting C. difficile were sicker than the average patient. They had more steroid exposure, more healthcare exposure when it came to ER and clinic visits and hospitalizations. And I think they were at perhaps a higher risk for getting into trouble with C. diff. 
And then we looked at the long-term impact by following these two groups of patients the year after the C. difficile infection. And when we looked at healthcare charges the year after C. diff, there was essentially a six-fold increase in healthcare charges. So what we, what we essentially believe from the study is that the C. diff actually has a long-term impact on the natural history of the disease. Again, work from Ashwin, um, when, when we think about trying to model or prognosticate, there are some things that we can look at in the IBD patient population. So in, uh, patients who have a low hemoglobin, a low albumin, or an elevated creatinine are all at a higher risk for having a severe outcome, colectomy, or death. So when we think about diagnostic considerations, an index of suspicion is really the key thing. We have to watch for this. We have to test our patients. It really does imply that we have to do stool testing. There's no other way to do it. C. diff is largely a disease of the geriatric population throughout the world and the U.S., but not when it comes to inflammatory bowel disease. As I mentioned previously, IBD patients are perhaps uniquely susceptible because of their dysbiotic flora and the immunosuppression that is oftentimes required to maintain remission. And when patients have been through steroids, that's perhaps the worst offending agent when it comes to the infection. So the ACG, ACG guidelines from a few years ago, five years ago, placed a big emphasis on detecting these patients. And we also have to remember that it's not just our colitic patients. Patients with J pouches, even though the colon has been removed, can experience a C. diff enteritis that could be absolutely devastating. What we have here on these images is a patient who is perhaps midway through a three-stage procedure. They have a diverting loop ileostomy. And what we're seeing on the bottom of this sagittal cut on the CT is uh, fluid-filled loops of bowel. And this individual had uh, pouchoscopy that we see on the top right with uh, uh, sort of an adherent mucus pus-like appearance, which is uh, in some regards classic for C. difficile in the J pouch. If we don't make this diagnosis, this has been reported to be a fatal complication. Beauchesne has published on that previously. So stool studies are essential. Um, the toxin assays had been uh, very important in the past. Um, it's really not done anymore because of the burden. You have to have a fibroblast culture and apply the stool onto the fibroblast to look for cytotoxicity. It's too expensive. It's too labor-intensive. It's too costly. It's really not done anymore. We had been one of the last hospitals in the U.S. to do these assays, but it's been abandoned. The toxin uh, ELISAs are incredibly um, precise when it comes to the confirming the infection, but the problem is they're not very sensitive. There has been a push to using gene um, strategies with PCR for nucleic acid amplification and detection of the enzyme uh, glutamate dehydrogenase to detect presence of the organism. And there's going to be probably two-step algorithms moving forward where we actually might screen with GDH, which is a not particularly expensive test, maybe a little bit too sensitive, but then we can confirm the potential infection by looking for presence of toxin moving forward. And there are also going to be some multiplex gastrointestinal pathogen panels emerging that are to detest not just C. diff, but all the other enteric pathogens. A little bit expensive, but they're on the way. Um, when we looked at some of the performance characteristics of the nucleic acid amplification uh, assays, they're actually not 100% sensitive. They have very nice sensitivities, but keep in mind that you might have an occasional patient who will need second samples to be sent. Um, one of the things that I think is important to remember is that with treatment, uh, many of these tests will actually start to turn negative fairly quickly. So about five days into therapy uh, for C. difficile, majority of the patients are going to have a negative test result. This doesn't mean that the first test result was, was inaccurate. It means that you're actually having a positive response to therapy. And there's really no rationale to test for cure. 
When we think about therapy, the ACG guidelines from five years ago placed an emphasis on stratification of patients based on severity of illness, and metronidazole had been part of the um, treatment uh, algorithm for milder patients, not necessarily the IBD patients. More recent studies have actually shifted towards efficacy with an emphasis on vancomycin and fidaxomycin being the more effective agents moving forward. For the IBD patient population, we do favor the use of vanco and fidaxomycin if possible. And the rationale um, is basically from a series of studies that showed that metronidazole was not as effective in severely ill patients. And severity was defined by arbitrary, not necessarily arbitrary, but um, uh, a series of criteria that included low albumin, creatinine elevation, higher white counts, and pseudomembranes, most commonly. Um, when we moved away from the use of metronidazole and exclusive use of vancomycin um, in Wisconsin, we actually saw, even though the infection rates remained high at that institution, we saw and uh, the hospitalization rates also remained high. We saw a pretty significant drop in colectomy that's actually demonstrated in this slide. So I think there is an opportunity to do a better job with in optimized uh, therapies. Um, Fidaxomycin, as you may be uh, familiar with, is an equally effective drug to vancomycin, but it's a little bit narrower spectrum of activity in the microbiota and the colon, and that may actually contribute to a reduced uh, risk of reinfection in the next uh, 60 to 90 days following initial treatment. Now, these are the new guidelines that come from our infectious disease colleagues, the IDSA. And there has been this migration away from the use of metronidazole. It's actually not part of the algorithms that are used now for C. difficile infection unless there's no alternative. And that usually implies not being able to afford the other antibiotics, which are more costly. But again, uh, vancomycin and fidaxomycin are now considered first-line therapy for C. difficile infections. Now, recurrent disease... Recurrent infections have actually increased um, significantly in the U.S. over the uh, early 2000s, and the patients who have had a, uh, the incidence of recurrent infections has actually gone up by 180 plus percent during this time period. IBD patients are uniquely susceptible to recurrent infections. They have a higher rate of recurrent infections than the general population. It's typically expected that about 25% of patients in the general population with C. difficile will have a recurrent infection. In the IBD patient population here from the University of Toronto in the recidivism trial, it was approximately a third of the patients, 34%, who had a recurrent infection. Other studies, um, abstracts that we've put out, suggest it may even be higher than that. And the agents that were associated with recurrent infection included corticosteroids and immunosuppressant use. Um, there has been a signal that comes from our colleagues at Mayo Clinic that actually longer courses of vancomycin with tapering regimens might actually be more efficacious. And one of the approaches that we have uh, tried to use or consider on a regular basis is extended courses of vancomycin, knowing that the IBD patients will have a fairly high rate of recurrence. Vancomycin, interestingly, will stress C. difficile, leading to sporulation, and that may actually be playing a role in the reason that the IBD patients are having such terrible rates with recurrence. A dysbiotic flora to begin with, problems with their immunity, and then the spores are going to basically contribute to reinfection. Fidaxomycin was shown to have a significant uh, benefit when it comes to prevention of recurrence in patients who have had uh, a first recurrent infection already. 
Now, there's a new agent called bezlituximab, which is a passive vaccine that can be administered to patients who are responding to antibiotic therapy for C. diff. And there was a uh, fairly robust trial, the Modify 1 and 2 trials, which clearly demonstrated there was a reduction in recurrent infections in the 60-day time period following the administration. There were actually a cohort of 44 patients with IBD who snuck into this trial, and Kieran Kelly had a letter in gastroenterology recently which suggested that the IBD patients did benefit from this. They had worse rates of recurrent infections than the population that was described here in general, but it was cut in half approximately with the use of this passive vaccine that, again, targets the C. difficile toxin B. Fecal microbiome transplant is the go-to strategy when our patients have had multiple recurrences of C. difficile, and it can definitely be used in the IBD patient population. There has been a series of studies. Uh, Monica Fisher at uh, Indiana University has done much of this work, and here is a multicenter trial which shows that the efficacy has not been quite as good as the general population with multiple um, FMT procedures, but it is safe and it can um, help resolve the infection in our patients. So I'm going to wrap things up. So for C. difficile and IBD, there are some few take-home messages. Please keep a high index of suspicion for C. difficile infection in patients with IBD who have been stable, who suddenly flare, and in patients who are experiencing refractory disease because we have to identify the infection and treat it. Um, C. difficile enteritis can definitely complicate patients who have undergone colectomy and patients who have a J-pouch. We have a new wave of testing with nucleic acid amplification and GDH um, enzyme assays to identify organisms, and we're going to probably move forward with confirmatory ELISA tests uh, to confirm that it's not colonization but infection. Um, But if there's a high index of suspicion, treatment is actually appropriate. Um, Vancomycin is the preferred agent based on the data uh, and case series form uh, for the treatment of C. difficile and IBD patients. Um, There's a higher than expected rate of recurrence of IBD, uh, C. difficile infection in the IBD patient population. And uh, we'll have to see where we go in the future in terms of some of these newer strategies with more selective gut antibiotics and passive vaccines. The IBD patients who have had an infection with C. diff will actually have an altered natural history that can make their disease course much more aggressive. And again, minimizing steroid exposure in patients undergoing infection is probably one of the key things with optimal antibiotic therapy. So thank you so much.